everybody. This is Topher and Jeff, and uh, this episode this week is going to be a little bit different um, and doesn't really warrant um, our typical cheery intro. Um, and just as an, as a uh, disclaimer, this is a pretty tough episode with uh, some heavy topics. So if you have younger kids uh, in the car with you, if you're in the car, uh, might not be one that you want uh, to listen to with them. Um, and on this episode, we bring on Katie Strang, who is a reporter with The Athletic. And uh, she, in February, wrote her first article on a story uh, that detailed a former youth hockey coach in Illinois, um, and he had always been rumored of allegedly sexually abusing youth hockey players. Um, and she also wrote about the failure of people in leadership positions that allowed this kind of thing to happen for so long. Um, at the time, like I grew up in Chicago at the time that all of this stuff was going on. Uh, the man, his name is Chico Adratus, and uh, he was a huge figure in Chicagoland hockey area. Um, he was a really good hockey coach. Uh, he won a lot, state championships, nationals, uh, moved a lot of players on to the next level. Um, but there was always rumors of his sexual abuse of youth hockey players. Uh, they were always around. And, you know, my dad told me when I was younger, I was not allowed to play for him. Uh, I know there's other families in Chicago that told their kids that they were not allowed to play for him because of the rumors. Um, and, and being in college, uh, being a former college coach and guys that have been doing it for a long time, I've been very vocal about this on social media and they've reached out to me that say, you know, we knew the rumors back in the day. Everybody knew about the rumors. Um, and so this story, um, that, that Katie uncovered, um, you know, it was a huge thing in Chicago and, and you know, around hockey world at large, uh, cause this stuff does happen. Um, but it's usually kept in the shadows. And for me, this is a story that really has three parts to it. Um, the, the first part is the abuse. And this is a man who was a, a predator and preyed on vulnerable kids, uh, and did it multiple times with the reporting that, that Katie, uh, that did and that came out and through a safe sport investigation that was done, uh, as well. And so in Katie's first article, you know, she detailed, um, just these horrific acts, uh, from, from men now that this happened to, um, you know, in, in their history and the strength of these men to come out and talk about this and bring this story to light and put their name on it and share this experience, uh, to me is, is, is incredible. The, the strength that they have to be able to talk about this. And, and I think they're saving kids lives because I think it's going to act as a deterrent, um, for predators that listen to this, that know that stories like this are going to come to light and they're not just going to be kept in the shadows. And, and I think on the other side of it, and this is the second part of the story is that people knew about this, whether it was rumor. And then at one point, uh, and you'll hear about it on the podcast, there was written documents that people in leadership position in hockey had that they did nothing with. And there's been, there was no accountability on Adratus's part and there still hasn't been accountability now for the people that chose to wash their hands, in my opinion, of the situation that happened. Um, you know, so hopefully these stories will um, make people in leadership list, uh, listen to it and they take action 
when things like this come to their attention and try instead of trying to sweep it under the rug. You know, so the first part is, is the abuse. The second part is, is the lack of accountability, um, on, on people in leadership positions that either heard the rumors or were given written testimony about this. Um, and then third, uh, I, I think a part of this, we obviously have a lot of parents that listen to this. We have a lot of coaches and hockey directors that listen to our podcast. There were people in Chicago and in Illinois that were okay employing a man like this, even with all of the rumors, because he was a good hockey coach and because he moved kids on to the next level. Parents were okay that their kids played for this man because it was going to get their son scouted or recruited or to the next level. And for anybody that listens to our podcast, you know that Jeff and I talk about all the time. Hockey is about life lessons. Hockey is about life lessons and it's about becoming a better person in, in so many different aspects. And if you quote unquote, make it, that's a byproduct of all of the things and experiences that we share. Uh, and, and all the things we learn about life that come through this great game of hockey. And that didn't happen. It just flat out didn't happen. People put, um, making it, people put, um, you know, personal success or their kids' personal success uh, ahead of the health and well-being of children, because it may not be your kid that's getting abused, but it might be somebody else's, and it was somebody else's. And so, I, I just think that's the third part of the story as this professionalized nature of youth hockey and the machine keeps going and going and going. I think people need to take a step back and this is a kind of story that can reset us on what's really important. And that's the health and well-being of, of children, not just our kids, but other kids too. And so this is a tough one. This is a really, really tough one. Um, you know, my, my dad, I invited onto this podcast too, uh, because he's a pretty prominent figure in Chicago hockey. He had a firsthand account of, of a that, that, you'll hear on the podcast and you'll hear my dad get really emotional about it. Um, and, uh, it's just, it's a tough episode, but it's a necessary episode. You, sometimes you need to call things out and with the hockey think tank, um, you know, we really tried to highlight, we want to make the game better with this podcast and all the stuff we do, we're just trying to make the game better. And a lot of times that comes from highlighting the positive stuff that happens in our sport. This is not one of them. This is one of those things that's uncomfortable, but I think at the end of the day is going to make our sport better. Um, so Jeff, you know, bringing you in here now, before we do get over to Katie, um, you know, you were kind of a fly on the wall in this, in that you, you heard about the rumors and you lived in St. Louis and I've heard, you know, I've talked to many people that were not involved in Chicago and heard the rumors back in the day and, and all of that. Um, you know, what are your, your thoughts after reading the stuff and, and, uh, and after, you know, going through this podcast here? Yeah, I mean it's it's tough to to read, tough to to listen to, but I think it's also important because there's people like this allegedly whatever out there and uh you know, you really got to do your homework and I think that for all the coaches listening, you know, I myself have joked around, oh, I got to do safe sport. Like I'm not going to do anything weird or you know whatever, like it's not but there are people who think this way in the world unfortunately so next time for the coaches that are listening to this your organization makes you take a safe sports course makes you do a background check just remember this podcast remember this episode 
the reason that we have to do it is for the safety of the kids uh, to make sure that, that this type of stuff never happens again, never happens ever. And, uh, and that's the goal with that stuff. So, um, you know, you, you got to hear this stuff to know that it is out there and just to have kind of a watchful eye out of, of anything because nobody had these kids backs, uh, you know, with some of these, these people who've come forward and, and been abused. So keep an eye out and, uh, you know, if there's any parents listening to this with their children, this might be one that, uh, you know, you don't let them listen to because there's some, there's some details that, you know, you don't want to expose the kids ears to, but, uh, nonetheless, it's, it's an important episode, I think for people to hear. Yeah, for sure. And again, going back to it, uh, you know, the, the courage of, of the men that put their name on this and, and came out and spoke about this, they're, they're going to save some kids' lives. There's no question. And so I just want uh, to make sure to thank you to them for, for bringing this out. Thank you to Katie for writing this. Um, as we stand here today, um, cause we did record this podcast a little bit ago as we stand here today, you know, the, the president of USA hockey is currently under investigation for his potential mishandling of, of the allegations that, that happened, um, you know, back when all of a lot of this stuff came out and you'll hear about that on the podcast. Um, Adratus's first big job was at the university of Minnesota, um, and university of Minnesota, you know, he was there for a year and resigned after a year and through Katie's reporting, it was shown that it was because of, um, abuse allegations. And, uh, and so, you know, that happened at the university of Minnesota as well. Um, they just came out and, uh, with, you know, they had a law firm that, uh, that investigated this after Katie's story came out and it turns out there were people in Minnesota's administration that knew about it and didn't do anything about it. Um, and obviously they're not still there today, um, but it was another instance of this kind of thing being swept under the rug. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's just, it's maddening between, between the abuse and how terrible that is between people washing their hands of it seemingly, um, when they did have firsthand written accounts, as we'll talk about on the podcast. And then it's just, it's, it's maddening that people were okay with this and it, it was putting putting kids in a situation that they're going to be under a man like this is supervision, you know, Chico Adratus is, uh, it's, it's tough to, to, it was tough to, to be a kid in Chicago at the time and be a family in Chicago at the time. And so, um, you know, if you haven't already, um, please go to, uh, Katie Strang's articles that she wrote about in the athletic about the situation. They're, they're just done so extremely well. And it had to have been extremely hard to write these kinds of articles on so many different accounts, because not only are, is this a really sensitive topic, but you got to make sure you get it right. And, and, uh, and so, you know, thank you to Katie. I also wrote about this. So this is coming out on Monday. Um, I gave my thoughts on, on my website, the hockey think tank.com, uh, about this situation. So I encourage you to go read, read that as well. It's, it's up right now. Um, and, uh, just a, a really, really unfortunate situation that, uh, that was just, it handled so poorly, but these kinds of things, again, sometimes you get better by shining light on things. And sometimes you get better by, bringing out things that are uncomfortable. And this is certainly one of those times. So uh, we want to thank Katie for all she's done for this story. 
Um, we want to thank the the people that have spoken out. Um, and this is a tough one. This is, this is definitely a tough one, but, uh, a necessary one, like we talked about. So, um, Katie did a fantastic job here in the her writing, uh, did a fantastic job explaining all the ins and outs and the details of, of the situation on this podcast. And, uh, so without further ado, uh, here we go with, uh, awesome reporter from the athletic Katie Strang. We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast from The Athletic, Katie Strang. Katie, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, guys. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. Well, we certainly have a lot to talk about here. You are making waves in the hockey world with some of the stories that you've written, uh, uncovered just a lot of really, really tough and uncomfortable things, but certainly a topic that, uh, that needs to be talked about for sure. But before we do get over to that, um, you know, you went to Michigan state, got a bachelor's in journalism, went to Columbia and got a master's in journalism. And, and one of the things that I was wondering just in, on your journey, when you got into journalism, was it more like, you were really into the investigative side, kind of like the hard hitting stuff that you have been doing. Were you more interested in the sports and, and how you were kind of able to merge the two with uh, the career that you've got? Yeah. You know, I wasn't really interested in that at all. When I first started, I wanted actually to be um, a football writer and I did a little bit of coverage of like pro football and a little bit of college football at my first job. Uh, I worked at Newsday which is one of the tabloids in New York. Um, and I loved that, but I just sort of back ended into covering hockey and then just like absolutely fell in love with hockey. Um, and I'm so thankful for that sort of serendipitous turn in my career, but I, you know, trying to kind of trace the Genesis of how I got into investigative stuff. I honestly don't remember when it became, even apparent to me that it was a, a potential avenue of, of, um, you know, like a career track that was available to me. I, I got interested in a little bit. Um, when I was at ESPN, I had this, um, woman there that was a tremendous mentor to me and she does phenomenal work. Her name's Paula Levine and she's one of their main investigative, uh, reporters and she does a terrific job. Um, but they have a absolutely stacked investigative team and, um, I couldn't really get a sniff working for them. Um, but then when I came to the athletic, you know, they were one of the great things about, you know, kind of coming to the company at the ground floor level is they were like, do what you're passionate about. Like you do you. And if you care about something, we feel like that makes the content better. And so they really encouraged me, you know, I got hired to, help get the Detroit outlet off the ground and cover baseball and hockey. But they were like, yeah, if you're, if you're interested in doing investigative stuff, go for it. And then the first real taste of that I got was, um, covering the Larry Nasser trial for lack of a better word. And, you know, I, I, I went to it basically cause it was in my backyard. Um, I was interested. I was a competitive gymnast growing up and, um, you know, after the first day, which was pretty, just viscerally, um, impactful and, and pretty important. I, you know, called my editors and I said, I think we just need to stick on this thing. And they said, go for it. And so that was, that was kind of the birth of the idea for me that this is something that I really enjoyed doing and felt like was really important. Crazy. So how, so you covered that case and, and did an awesome job covering that case. How, 
like how crazy was that moment at the ESPYs when they had all of the women up there that he had abused? I mean, probably not all of them, but certainly a heck of a lot of them. That was just like such a crazy thing to see because this is kind of the kind of stuff that nobody really talks about and nobody wants to talk about. Um, so what was that like seeing that having covered it for so long? You know, it was, it was so nice to see them recognized in that way because I just, I was continually blown away by each and every survivor that came forward and provided victim impact statements against him. They were so courageous. They were so like almost flawlessly poised. Like I would have been a mess up there. I was a mess covering it truthfully. Like Uh, You know, I feel bad in retrospect for maybe how emotionally unprepared I was. I I was a pretty new mom at the time and probably still like pretty hormonal. And I like I was just a huddle all the time. And um, like they just they rose to every occasion. And it was incredible seeing that sort of like strength. And they really it just felt like there was this reserve of solidarity that they had, you know, built amongst each other. And they just siphoned from that every day. And you could really see just tangibly them grow stronger, you know, the more and more they spoke out. And so to see them recognized for what they did, which is really extraordinary. And I think really captivated people's attention and also created a lot of awareness about this issue was really awesome to see. Yeah, for sure. Well, you mentioned like, I can't imagine how hard that is to to open up about something like that. I mean, such a just grossly traumatic experience. And, you know, for you, I, I don't know how you do it. Like some of the stuff that you wrote about with that and then some of the stuff that you wrote about with with this case here that we're going to talk about i mean you're you're getting people to open up about some incredibly incredibly horrific events in their life for you as a reporter how do you like how do you go about those types of conversations it can't be easy uh it's not it's not it's like emotionally a lot of heavy lifting but you know i always I think it helps knowing that the person that's across from you is doing something much more difficult than I'm doing. Right. And so I'm always sort of humbled by the fact that someone trusting you, um, to have those conversations and to share their story. That's a very intimate experience and, you know, something really painful, private disclosure. Um, and so I try to, you know, hold space for people to, to share that in a, in a way that is safe and non-judgmental. And, um, you know, that, that a lot of times people feel a sense of catharsis and, um, healing just simply by the fact of telling their story and, and knowing that, that, that I think helps alleviate some of that. Um, you know, it's a very charged emotional experience to have to do that, um, whenever you do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I also eat my feelings. So (laughs) you and me both. It's okay. (laughs) Jeff gives me crap for that all the time. (laughs) I I bicep curl mine. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I need to be doing. That's what I need to be doing. Yeah. For me, it runs in the family. I think it was a genetic thing. My dad passed down to me that eating your feelings kind of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Well, Katie, let's let's get into that because you've made waves in the hockey world uh, over the past, I don't know, four or five months, whatever it's been since your first story came out. And, um, you know, in the intro, we gave or will give uh, a little bit of a background to, to what it is. But, man, this is like this is a tough one because I grew up at the time that he was doing his thing in Chicago and and uh it, it's crazy because there's kind of like two parts of the story, right? There's one, this guy's obviously abusing children um, and doing it in a way that is methodical and well thought out and, and all that kind of stuff. But then the other side of the story is the amount of people that knew about it and did nothing about it or flat out covered it up. And so I kind of wanted to go through a little bit of the timeline of, of the story um, just to kind of give our listeners, maybe they haven't read your your stuff yet. And if you haven't, you know, go ahead and just be aware that it's it's not an easy read by any means, especially the first, the first article that Katie had out. But this guy Chico Adratus uh, kind of like – flew through the ranks of midget junior hockey in Chicago and eventually ended up uh, getting a job as an assistant coach at the University of Minnesota and was there for one year and then just kind of mysteriously left. And so kind of take us through maybe the start of that because I feel like that's a little bit of the start of when everybody started to know but didn't really say anything and it kind of snowballed from there. Sure. Yeah, that definitely, I think, is the nexus for the most like persistent stories that followed him wherever he went. And when I was first um, introduced to the story, you know, by someone that I really know and respect and, you know, someone with, you know, very deeply entrenched knowledge in 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 this domain, um, that particular incident is what they advised me to look into. So I started there. And I, you know, looked up a roster from the year that he was there. I made a few calls and it became clear within the matter of an hour that there was quite a bit here and that people were willing to talk about it, which, you know, I had probably anticipated a little bit more um, of guardedness. And I, I think the fact is people tried talking about it then and you know, they were still very, very much bothered by what happened. So what happened was um, he got hired pretty late in the summer as um, a goalie coach to Brad Buto um, with the Gophers program. And you have to understand just contextually at the time, um, you know, the Gophers remain one of the premier, you know, college hockey programs in the country. Um, And, you know, I wouldn't say had a very common practice of hiring people from the outside, right? Like they hire from Minnesota. And so for him to get that job was pretty remarkable in and of itself. Um, So it gives you a sense of sort of his rapid ascension um, in the coaching rings in his trajectory. But um, as you said, he lasted only a season and was just abruptly shown the door under dubious reasons. Like if you pull up an old newspaper article, it will say that he left for personal reasons. Well, if you talk to anyone that was affiliated with that program, they will tell you, um, he was approaching players, according to several accounts that have been told to me, he was approaching players with this really, um, sort of wild sounding premise. And he was saying, you know, Hey, I have this woman that I know who lives here who loves to perform oral sex, the only caveat being you have to be blindfolded. 
And would you like me to set that up for you? I mean, this, I understand how wild and brazen this sounds, but, um, you know, also taking into account that this is a different time period culturally, we didn't know enough. Um, we didn't know nearly as much as we know now. Right. And so, um, you know, some people declined those, um, you know, attempts to, to lure players in and some players did not. And, and what players basically figured out by, you know, they, they tried to sort of orchestrate a sting effort to figure out who was going in and, and performing this act and who, what was exactly was going on. And they figured out that no one was entering or leaving the premises when this was supposed to be occurring. Um, and so they all kind of huddled with their findings and said, Hey guys, we think this is the guy himself doing this. And, and this is some elaborate ruse to trick players into, you know, being sexually abused. And so at least one player, at least one former player, and at least one very powerful person connected with the program went almost immediately once they had found this out to the athletic director who is now deceased. And they told him. And not long after um, those conversations were had, he was shown the door and told to leave town. And that's how he ended up back in Illinois, which is where he began coaching and sort of building his reputation and profile as someone that was a pretty good coach for young players. That's just, that's just like, it's just crazy. And, and it's crazy too, that like something like that happens and for so long, even in Chicago, but even other places, like there was always the rumors, but nobody ever did anything about it. And, uh, it's crazy. And I also think there's something to it. Um, and I was having this conversation just an hour ago, honestly, about how those stories were able to persist for so long and nothing was really done. Do I think that in some cases, like it was negligent and perhaps worse? Yes, I do. I think there were some cases where people definitely had an idea of what was going on and did not do the right thing. Um, but I think for a lot of people that didn't have maybe firsthand experience, but had sort of heard the rumors, I think a lot of people thought like, this is a crazy story. And if this was true, like, and if these stories had been circulating for this long, then someone would have surely have done something about it, right? Like this would have come out. So the longer it went, it almost felt like the inertia of the situation built this like massive obstacle to people actually kind of dismantling it and getting at the truth. So it is wild. It's wild that those stories were very much ever present throughout his coaching career and followed him wherever he went. Um, and yet he got job after job after job. And I mean, you guys can speak, you know, more intelligently than I can about what his reputation was like within the community and how people reacted to those, to those rumors. Yeah. Dad, let's bring you in on this one now. I mean, you lived it like you were there at the time that all this stuff was going on. I mean, I was just a kid, so I was right. a little bit shielded and I'm sure you shielded me a little bit from it too. But, um, what was it like for you having known this stuff and been a part of it and, and all that kind of, I mean, 
I mean, we'll get into it later, but I, I legitimately yeah. remember you getting into arguments with people saying, hey, this guy's a bad guy, and this is why. Why are you hiring him, or why are you letting your kids play for him? You know, like, so wh- what was that like for you? Well, um, you know, I have a firsthand account um, of a situation where I was in a room with a player who was from out of town uh, that was recruited to play for a junior team in Chicago. And um, it was apparent that he was sleeping over at Chico's house. Um, and they were He was supposed to be sleeping at another home who, his, who he was billeted with, but he was sleeping at Chico's house. And there were three or four of us in the room, and the question was posed to him, why are you sleeping over there? Why are you doing this? And the kid literally broke down crying, um, and said, I can't tell you. And, and, wow, I said I wasn't going to do this. You know, it's, it's been that long. Um, holding this stuff in. And, and the article that finally came out with Safe Sport was finally, for me, um, 100%. You know, like Katie's stuff was 99%. But, you know, for, for them to come out, and why did it take so long for them to, uh, to be in the place that they are now? And, and 21 months of research when somebody else can do it in nine months, eight months. Um, but anyway, I, I segued there, and, I, and I'm sorry. But um, sitting in that room, seeing that young man the way he was, um, everybody knew something was real. Um, did we know what exactly was real? No, but we felt in our heart something was wrong. Was it Whether it was mental abuse or sexual abuse, Nobody knew, but we knew that it was wrong. And then, you know, kind of from there, I, I don't know where you want to go with this, Tove, but, you know, in the Chicago area, he was such a successful coach. And, um, you know, there was a period of time where, um, you know, I kind of lost contact with what where he was and what he was doing, but he was a successful coach. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, the kids that, that we knew who were a little bit older than you um, were getting to that age where they were going to coach or, or be part of, you know, that age group with him. And parents would ask us because we were entrenched in the hockey community and, and good friends of ours. And we would have these conversations and I'd be like, you gotta be kidding me. Why are you even thinking of this? Here's my firsthand account. And my firsthand account to my friends wasn't good enough to Trump. He's going to develop my kid and send him to the NHL. What? So I know just from our conversations recently, but even when we were or when I was younger, you're, you've always been old. But um, <laughs> um, like I know you spoke to hockey directors. Don't hire this guy. I know you spoke to parents. Don't let your kids in. There was a freaking rule. 
I don't know if it was unspoken or spoken or whatever. There was unspoken. a freaking unspoken rule that this guy yeah. wasn't allowed in the damn locker room yep. of the teams that he was coaching, yet hockey directors felt it was okay yep. to hire him because he was a good hockey coach. Yep. Now I'm getting heated and emotional. And parents thought it was okay to let their kids play for a guy that wasn't allowed in the locker room because he had a history, whether it was rumor or true, obviously it's true now that everything has come out, but that he was a child sex abuser. How sick is that? Yeah. And what were those conversations like for you? Um, you know, they were tough, um, because obviously, you know, it's your character. Um, you know, obviously we take things personally and it's like when I when I said my good friends, <laughs> people who I went out to dinner with, people who I played hockey with, people who I had beers with, um, that was all fine and good. But now when you're talking about your kid, now my opinion doesn't mean anything. And that's uh, that that just I found that so fascinating. But, um, but I, I remember, that, sorry. yeah, I remember um, when you were I don't know probably around twelve or thirteen years old and. You know, the, it looked like you were on a path that was going to be a, a, a higher level path playing hockey. And um, some people um, that I know um, who were running an organization, um, mom and I were sitting in, a, in their office talking. And the one guy said, well, hey, um, you know, when Topher's a midget, you know, we're going to da 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 whatever. And I'm, I looked at him and I go, no. And they looked at me like, what are you talking about? I go, if that guy is coaching at the midget level in this organization, my kid will not be there. My kid will never play for him. As a matter of fact, my kid is instructed if he ever gets on the ice that he is to go off. And of course, you know, you being 12 years old and hearing some of the conversations when you were younger about this, you didn't really know why, but it's something that you remember. Yeah. And I knew why. Yeah. And, and, and at, at 12, 13 years old, and I wasn't the only one that knew why. Like I have conversations with people my age all the time whose parents didn't let them play for this guy either. Right. So, you know, Good try, try, <laughs> try grappling with that kind of stuff as a 13 year old. Um, but Katie, I, like, I want to go to you here, like just with some of the conversations that you've had and, and re- having reported on this, you know, dad, like these guys, these abusers, they're like, I don't master manipulators. I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. the right way of putting it. So not only are they able to, well, first of all, they have an MO Katie, which I'm sure you can talk to on how they, um, approach these young kids, but also they're master manipulators to try and manipulate the situation. So you look like an, an a-hole for disputing him and he gets everybody else to think he's a God, which he did in, in Chicago. Um, so Katie, can you talk a little bit to that? Just like the mindset and, and just how it all kind of comes about. Sure. Yeah. And you're right. They are, you know, sexual predators are typically master manipulators. And, you know, the term that we most frequently use now to describe, um, very specific behavior like that is what we call grooming. And grooming means, um, it can mean a lot of different things. It can take a lot of different shapes, but, um, when a, when a 
when someone in a position of power, whether it be a coach, a teacher, a clergy member, um, uses that position of power to create favor, cultivated a naturally close relationship um, with a, you know, a student or an athlete or, you know what I mean, um, an altar boy, like something like that. And the various ways that they sort of ingratiate themselves and foster this sort of really intense connection is they will often lavish you with praise. Um, They will provide you with gifts, provide you with specialized treatment. They will um, isolate you from your friends and family. They will they will very deliberately chip away and continuously erode your relationships with everyone around you that are healthy so that they position themselves to be the person you turn to when you are in trouble. And that confers to them a tremendous amount of trust And it also makes the person doing the trusting extremely vulnerable and they prey on that. And, you know, while we're having these conversations about parents, um, grooming parents is also a very like textbook practice of predators that not only will they groom the player, they will groom the parent. They will read and sort of intuit what that parent wants do they, is this a stage parent that wants to see their kids succeed? Is this someone that lives vicariously through their kid's hockey career? Is this someone who's going through a tough divorce so that if I step in and offer to drive this player to practice, I'm going to have access to this child. And that is how they are so adept at gaining access, gaining trust, and in many ways, insulating themselves from scrutiny is they make these people believe that they are the people to lean on, the people to trust. Like, it would be so much easier if all these guys popped out of the bushes in a trench coat, but that's not the way it is. Like, this person is that nice neighbor that, like, helps you bring in the groceries. They they are very good at concealing themselves, and, and the ability to do so is what allows them often to do that for years and go undetected. Yeah, that's just, it's absolutely sick. And it kind of goes back to it. Like, like, do they have like a specific profile of kind of like a kid or family that they go after? Or is it like, I, I, yeah. because I just, in reading, in reading your articles, like I look at a person like Brent Carey, dad, who, you know, um, who's been outspoken about this ever since, um, ever since the story came out and like, I think his dad passed away like that year or yeah. the year before. And, and he was billeting and, and not living at home and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's almost like somebody that's in that state of a kid. It's like the perfect. Yeah. Yeah. They, they prey on vulnerability. Yeah. And so Brent was in a tremendously like vulnerable place in his life, having just lost his father to a horrific disease and see him deteriorate. Um, you know, Predators will often choose um, prey on people who have a strained relationship with parents, have a fractured family relationship, anything that provides them like an entry point to exploit, they will use. Um, And we saw that in many cases in this situation. And, you know, it's 
it's a pretty quintessential behavior across the board. Yeah. Yeah. So you look at guys like, like Brent who spoke out and he wasn't abused, but he was groomed for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at someone like Mike Sachs who spoke out and you wrote about in your story, Chris Jensen, like now that the story is out and th- I can't imagine how much strength it took for those guys to, to speak out. And we talked a little bit about it with, um, with the gymnasts and, and how powerful that was, but having done this story and spoken to them, um, and they were the first ones to do it. How much, like how much just respect, I don't even know what the right word is, but like, what are your thoughts on those guys from standing up for that? Yeah. I mean, just utterly blown away. I mean, there, you know, you think about, you know, in hockey, I think we talk a lot about toughness, right? Like there's, there's almost this fetishization of, of toughness. And to me, like those three guys really personify like toughness, grit, resilience, um, in terms, and, and, you know, I think this is important to know, like in, in coming forward, they allowed themselves to be tremendously vulnerable, no, not knowing how people were going to react. I mean, they have gone in some cases, decades of, of, you know, fear and shame and isolation about what telling their story could look like, but they all chose to do so for a pretty common reason. And that was because they did not want another kid to get hurt. And knowing that 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 was the driving force for all of them to step forward and have their story be counted, um, I have such a tremendous amount of respect, um, and admiration for all three of them. Yeah, that's, it's incredible. And it's kind of a good segue into not wanting other kids to get hurt. Um, so when I think, I believe it was 2010, um, Chico crazily, even with all these r- rumors and everything going around a high, which is the USA hockey arm, um, for Illinois are going to put this guy in the hall of fame. So can we just like unpack that for a second? Because I haven't gotten the time to like properly digest, like digest that or debrief with someone like, so this safe sport investigation came out and the, you know, I had reported on the whole hall of fame process before because it, you know, it was the impetus for Chris Jensen coming forward and reporting to a high. No, you may not honor this person. This is what this person did to me. This is inappropriate this person should not ever be coaching adolescents. Okay. So I'd done that before, but, um, you know, this, this recent development with the safe sport investigation revealed some new details that are just like utterly mind blowing among them. Um, so the president of a high at the time, Mike Mullally admitted in his testimony that for years, this committee of the Illinois hockey hall of fame, which is basically um, a collection of former past presidents of AHI and the current president. They all discussed putting Chico on the ballot, but basically they balked every time because of the rumors and stories that followed him. And they just, they refused to do it. They just, because of those rumors. And then he said that they just finally decided to just push him through. And I just, I cannot, for the life of me, wrap my brain around that. And even more so, like, let me just take just the sheer absurdity a step further here. I just want to be very clear that when they were notified 
by Chris Jensen. Um, you know, Chris Jensen talked to Mike Mullally about this. Mike Mullally found Chris Jensen very credible. He asked him to put it in writing, which Chris did. And I'll give Mike Mullally some credit here. He did go to law enforcement. He asked them if there, if what the statute of limitations was. They told him that they could not pursue this criminally. Okay. However, he and another AHI official approached Chico about these allegations. And do you know what Chico did? He admitted to sexual misconduct. He said, I did not personally perform oral sex on this player, which I, you know, the overwhelming evidence in both the safe sport investigation and my story suggests is untrue, but he did admit to procuring someone to perform oral sex on a minor for his own sexual gratification. Like, I just want us all to wrap our heads around how crazy fucking crazy that is. And they said, all right, well, you know what? We're going to leave this up to you then. If you want to bow out, then we'll have you do that. But, you know, know that this could come out if that's the case. Meanwhile, Chico was a coach at a local college program, okay? And they were advised, you need to tell this program. This program plays within the ACHA, which is governed by USA Hockey. If this, if, if you believe this to be true, you have to let this program know. You have to actually let every program he's ever played for know. And do you know what they said? It's not our responsibility. According to the like investigative findings, the, the consensus within AHI was it's not our it's not our responsibility. It's not our concern to share. And I just want to take a second to say like that they might not have had any mandated like legal reporting responsibilities. But to not tell someone where that person is coaching is just an absolute abdication of you know, you are spurning every ounce of moral, like, responsibility you have as a person with a conscience. And that is just absolutely unacceptable, morally craven, and just unspeakable to me. Especially and, like, in 2010. I mean, it just, it just blows my mind. In two, 2010. And you know what happened? He coached there for eight years after that. So, I mean, I just... This is honestly like I feel like my jaw dropped when I read that um, and I have yet to pick it off the floor because those are people ta- like just to underscore this. These are the people that are tasked with overseeing youth hockey. They're charged with the protection of our children. If you cannot count on someone in power to be notified of a credible sexual assault allegation and then have someone that is accused admit to it and not do something. I mean, I, like what, what is going on? Like that, that is, that is such an indict, a damning indictment on the, the, the systemic rot within that, that organization. It's it's just unbelievable. And the, the the ironic part about it too, right, is that 
it's not like they had to go out of their way to let Robert Morris University. First of all, Robert Morris University, not the Pittsburgh one. Everybody gets that it's in Chicago. They play at the very rink. Chico was coaching at the very rink that a high holds some of their meetings at. And where they have an office meetings, rules, rules and ethics meetings. You didn't like you. I would, it's almost too on the nose. Like if I were to be writing fiction, I wouldn't put that because it's like just not subtle enough. Yeah. Well, the thing that really pissed me off about all this stuff going on, uh, when your stories came out and everything like that is just the, the sticking the head in the sand that these people are doing right now. And, and just, you know, they say, oh, we really care about the safety of our kids and yada, yada, yada. There's, they're full of it. I mean, the president of USA Hockey is implicated in all this. Like, he is somebody that you've written extensively about in your articles. He's under investigation now for what's going on. And if, what does that say? Like, what does that say to the families of the people within USA Hockey, the, the hundreds of thousands of kids that are playing with this, that the president and the person at the top of the pyramid, that's number one goal is to keep the kids safe and provide an environment where they can be safe to play hockey is implicated in something like this. And they're doing nothing. I, I think there's an investigation now, now, now <laughs> that you've uncovered all of this stuff. Um, like, again, it goes back. It's baffling. That's a good word for it. I mean, that's a good <laughs> word for it. And yet, Jim Smith, president of USA Hockey, leading leading a meeting during their annual Congress meetings. How tone deaf I mean, is that? Extremely. <laughs> I mean, it really makes you question, I think, the organization's priorities. You have someone at the very top being investigated for not doing the right thing when it comes to protecting the safety and well-being of kids. One one of the things with that, Katie, that I um, just really makes me angry um, is that um, when asked about that, the comment he made was there were no reports given to me or reports made about Chico. Official, official and, reports, and, right? And it's, and it's like, I, I feel like, do you really think that we're that dumb um, because if you were involved and I'm just going to go triple a hockey, I believe it to be most of hockey, but let's just say triple a hockey. Mm-hmm. If you were involved in triple a hockey and, or you were an a high board member or volunteer with a high in the mid eighties to let's just call it 2010. And you had spent five years or more in any capacity there. There is no way that you can tell somebody you didn't hear the stories, the rumors, whatever. There's no way you can tell anybody you didn't talk to somebody about it. There is no way you couldn't say you didn't talk to 10 somebodies about it. And then, you know, for the for the for the people who who are supposed to be protecting our kids, um, to have so many of them that I believe knew and for that to go on for as long as it has, shame on them. 
I, I look at yourself in the mirror, look at your kid and say, am I that person? Frustrating. I'm from St. Louis and I heard the stories about him. I wasn't, I wasn't even in Chicago and I heard some of these stories as a kid. So. Yeah, it's uh, and, and that's the thing, too, you think about, right? Like this guy was allowed to coach for eight years in the very rink that the governing body of Illinois through USA Hockey held their meetings, their rules and ethics meetings. He was allowed to coach for eight years. And, and Katie, like I have to ask the question, like there's three that we know about that you've written about in however amount of time, like if it's three, there's gotta be a lot more. I, and I, I, maybe that, I don't know if I, maybe if I, I don't know if I can say it, but like, I don't know. So what I can tell you, um, what I feel like I can share is that, you know, typically two things, typically, um, someone that has committed sexual abuse, you know, of this nature, preying on, you know, kids in their care, minors in their care. Um, it is very rarely isolated. And in, we've seen even in this scenario, it is not isolated. And these people, you know, there were, there were three people that were named in the first article, but then there were three more who were unnamed. Um, and they spanned, you know, all different ages, generations, states, um, did, none of whom like knew each other at the time that any of this happened. Um, so that probably gives you a good indication of, of that. Um, also factoring in, you know, the dynamic of, the, the difficulty of talking about sexual abuse and the average age of disclosure for a man that was sexually abused is around the age of 50. Um, it's a really difficult thing to talk about. And then you add in some of the sort of like cultural institutional barriers within the hockey world. And then I, it's even more difficult. Um, and what I will tell you is um, I have, I have been busy the past, you know, eight months and I suspect I will be busy for quite a long time. Um, yeah. Crazy. And, and oh God, and I just, the thing that that's matting, right. Dad, like it was rumors for a long time, you know, like rumors. And then Katie's story comes out in 2010 that, that, uh, a, somebody that was abused wrote a letter to a high and they did nothing with it. And he was allowed to coach for eight more years. Like if something happened in those eight years, yeah, you know, like before it was rumor, there was nothing corroborated. Everybody kind of knew, but didn't know like, you know, the stuff at Minnesota and everything like that. It was all hush, hush, but everybody knew kind of thing. After that, that's when I feel like, and Katie, correct me if I'm wrong. Like I, that's just, you're the reporter. I'm just kind of read like they, they knew there was evidence from a letter that was written to Ahai. I don't know. Yeah. And one thing that has irked me is that there have been, um, you know, not said directly to me because Ahai really has not ever responded directly to questions that I've posed to them over the span of many months and on several different occasions. And in fact, we sent a reporter to an Ahai, um, board meeting and got kicked out. Um, 
but you know, I've, I've seen, you know, documents and testimony, um, suggesting that they did not act because they did not have what they felt to be sufficient proof. This really bothers me. So, you know, I don't know what they feel like their burden of proof is or what threshold they're trying to satisfy, but they had a player come to them willing to put his name on the line and detail this horrific experience that he said he went through. They found at least the president at the time found him very credible. And then when confronted again, just to underscore this, when confronted about the allegations, the coach Chico melted down, refused to show up for a disciplinary hearing, rescinded his name from nomination for the Hall of Fame committee and in both in-person discussions and via email admitted to sexual misconduct by way of procuring someone to perform oral sex on a minor in their care. What more proof do you want? This is, are you expecting forensic evidence? Like you don't have subpoena. That is the best proof you are ever going to get in a case like this. Ugh. Yeah. Crazy. So, so we go to, so he coaches at Robert Morris for eight years. Um, and then a letter gets written to ACHA, which is, uh, the league that Robert Morris plays in division one club hockey. Um, and that's when Chico mysteriously disappears again. So there's no, nothing written. I mean, it's kind of like the MO of these people. Like, I don't know how, I mean, I don't know if Robert Morris or whoever's a part of that is just trying to save their own ass or what, cause they don't want a, a scandal. But again, he's a, a letter gets written to ACHA and then he just kind of leaves and he's out doing not, he's in Florida, like going to rinks right now as we speak. So can you talk to like that 2000? Cause the 2018 one was the one that prompted the safe sport investigation that just happened and came out. Sure. So go yeah. On. Yeah. So, okay. So Mike Sachs, um, who, you know, was featured prominently in the first story, um, wrote a letter to, like you said, the ACHA, which is the governing body of, um, Robert Morris, not unlike NCAA, um, and detailed his experience of, you know, what he said was a 20 month span of sexual abuse. And that immediately triggered a safe, a safe sport investigation. Now safe sport for people that do not know, it's a central clearinghouse that investigates all claims of sexual abuse and misconduct under the USOPC. Um, so that investigation started as soon as those allegations in the investigation was present would once Chico was confronted with those, he left the team. He resigned, he moved to Florida. He, there was no like explanation given. He told people that he, um, had come into an inheritance by a relative that had passed away and just wanted to get away and go live in Florida. Now I will. And so obviously this last story that I just wrote is about the culmination of that 21 month investigation. They just recently found, um, basically overwhelming evidence to suggest that not only was the preponderance of evidence um, that he sexually abused these three players that came forward in the investigation, but also likely um, abused six, at least six additional athletes. And um, right. So 
So that um, that's where it stands. So he so he has a lifetime ban. He's never allowed to coach, you know, within any USA Hockey sanctioned um, capacity or any like anything under the USOPC umbrella. Um, and you know, just from my reporting and some of the follow up reporting I've done, I, I can also tell you that you know they it, down in Florida, like the state governing body, is well aware of these. Um, allegations and discovery and findings. And he has been in every rink within, you know, a certain radius or whatever of where he lives has been instructed not to permit him to come to the rink, um, rent ice at the rink or anything like that. People have been put on notice that he is not to be in any way, shape or form let in or allowed to participate in any activity. That's just, uh, so what was it, 1980, the year that he was at Minnesota? 1984. 1984. So, okay, math guy Jeff, 26 years later, he's finally banned. Oh, no, longer than that. Am I, so, am I missing my math? Oh, so I'm born, I'm born in 84, and I'm almost 36. 30, so oh, yeah, carry the two. Yeah, so, Sorry, I yeah. missed, missed a 10 ahead. there. Okay. <laughs> Other way, Cornell boy. <laughs> <laughs> so 36 years after it was first reported, he's finally banned from hockey. That just, I mean, that in and of itself, it, uh, it just, I mean, Vex, we're going to do an episode, honestly, in the, in the near future about the shit that I've seen in youth hockey. But like, you, you look at like the lengths that, uh, that organizations will go to have a winning program, or you look at the lengths that parents will go to get their kids to whatever level of hockey. Like this guy was legitimately a alleged, but known child sex abuser. Yet he was able to walk free in rinks for 36 years after he was first confronted about it. Like that's just, it's, it's maddening. It's absolutely maddening. And, and dad, like I wanted to ask you because, you know, this is something like you were in the room when a kid broke down and now here we are, however many years later after that, how do you, oh, you probably have to get the Kleenex again, knowing you, but <laughs> like, seriously, like, how do you feel I, I was, I've heard the conversations that you've had with other parents. I know the conversations that you had with hockey directors trying to do the right thing, trying to protect the kids that this guy was going to be in their purview. Like, how do you feel right now that this guy is finally gone? Um, well, let's hope he's still not in fricking jail. Yeah. So let's not forget that this guy's roaming the streets still, Yeah. but he's not allowed to be, coaching any sanctioned event in any USA hockey stuff? Um, you know, I think you guys saw by my emotions, you know, just talking about that. Um, every time, <laughs> every time I see that kid's face, just goes in my head and I can't 
I, I feel guilty. I feel rage. I feel I feel for the kid, the parents of that kid to have to go through that. It's it's um it's it's really unbelievable. And then, you know, Tofu and I were talking about this earlier. Um you know, these emotions come up in us as human beings, right? And um I know some of the players that played for him who loved him, who weren't the targets. And I can't imagine, and, and oh, by the way, who defended him in years past to me personally? Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I can't imagine how played they feel or even the parents who were the, the people like like we've talked about certain people that we know that we've had certain conversations with who were great players on his teams that he didn't go after. And Katie, to your uh, to what you were talking about with grooming and grooming the parents, he would, in my opinion, he would go after those families of the kids who were the best players mm-hmm. and be their champion knowing he wasn't going after them, but they would support him. And, and, and to those families right now, how do they feel? Right? Those players, how do they feel now knowing that everything that that guy told them was grooming some other young man? Powerful. Yeah. So, so Katie, I mean, what, what's next? I mean, what, I mean, this is, um, this is obviously like a, a, a crazy story here. I, I mean, you, you have reported on this amazingly, by the way, like it's, it's been incredible. I mean, I've been very outspoken on social media. I have a big social media following. So people in Chicago are kind of like, calling me and texting me and all this kind of stuff like holy shit this katie she's unreal (laughs) um for for her reporting but like is this like a, a legitimate problem is this an isolated incident i guess i could say like in hockey you have graham james in canada and i think everybody that's at least a little bit involved in hockey knows about that. And with Sheldon Kennedy and Theo Fleury coming out uh, about what happened to them in Canada. And now we have your story, which I feel like, I think there was one in, in Massachusetts too, that just came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is maybe three incidents that I know of in however, in a long time. Is this, are these isolated incidents or do you feel like this is a problem? Oh, this is a problem. And it's not, it's not specific to hockey. Um, I think hockey sometimes presents some convenience for people who are predators in the sense that like, there's a lot of financial investment in the sport and there's a lot of travel. And so what I think that sometimes provides is opportunity. Um, and in a ton of ways that I draw a lot of parallels to gymnastics in that way. Um, but this, like, this is a problem in all sports. And if you need any evidence of that, like, go look at the U S center for safe sports, like disciplinary database. Like it is chock full. Like they are under a deluge of complaints and issues with this. Um, and 
uh, you know, because I have been reporting on this specific issue within hockey for like a couple of years now, um, you know, I've talked to people about this a lot and sometimes people have just like preemptively come and sought me out. Like, I think there's, there, this is much more widespread than this is much more common than people think. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd be surprised if there isn't someone at every rink that people have, have heard something untoward about. Now that doesn't mean that there is a predator at every rink, but like, do I think that this problem is much more rampant than people understand? Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, is there like, as we kind of go through this story and as you reported on it, you know, you get to know the, um, the victims and, and get to talk to them and stuff like that. Like, how are they feeling now that this is all kind of out there? Um, and, and for everybody to, to see. Yeah, I think they're, you know, I think they're feeling a, a multitude of emotions. I think there's a level of relief to see some tangible action being taken in the form of him being assessed a lifetime ban and people who may have known and not acted appropriately being held being investigated and perhaps held accountable. Um, I think they, especially the lifetime ban, I think they feel comforted that their willingness to come forward is going to help mitigate the risk of it happening again. Um, And, you know, I think one of the, you know, these stories can be really depressing, right? But one of the things that always restores my faith in humanity Um, and I am biased because I'm a hockey girl and I love hockey, but like every person that came forward would tell you that they were overwhelmed by the level of like unconditional love and support that they received from people that they knew in the hockey community. Like when shit hit the fan and things got real, their hockey people showed up for them. And sometimes it'd be teammates that they hadn't heard from in decades. And those people, like, just how you would expect, like, in, you know, any situation on the ice, like, when a teammate gets into trouble, like, no matter whether you like that guy or not, like, you have his back, you are ready to drop the gloves at the, like, on a dime. And I think that they've, that has definitely been affirmed to those people. So I think it's been a tremendous source of support and solidarity that they've needed and has been very therapeutic and healing. That's great. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And, you know, like to, to have to hold on to something like that for so long and being, and then being, you know, open and strong enough to share it. And then to, to get that support from the people that, that probably hadn't, been in contact with in a long time. Like, God, I just, I feel for them and I'm so happy for them that they found at least a little bit of peace in Mm -hmm. is just, just, uh, just an absolutely tragic. I don't even know what the words are for how awful this, this whole thing has become. Um, but Vex, like, so you've been kind of quiet here. We were from Chicago. So we, you know, know the story and, and all that kind of stuff. 
as somebody who's kind of hearing this for the first time right now and is involved and you coach kids and all that kind of stuff, what, what are kind of like the thoughts that come to your mind? Makes me not as uh, upset to have to do those hours of safe sport modules. Cause <laughs> I mean, to bring a little light to the story. I mean, when I was first doing those, when I retired, I was like, I don't want to be weird around kids. Why do I have to do any of this? This is ridiculous. I don't have any ill intentions towards kids. All I'm here to do is help them. But, uh, you hear stuff like this and you're like, okay, well I'll take a couple hours out of my week and, and do that stuff so that hopefully nothing like this ever happens again. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Not a big fan of, um, I'm sure that, you know, people want their kids to be on good teams and they want to be on winning teams. But you, you mentioned earlier, like at what cost? And, you know, I think of some of the things that I've seen that aren't physical abuse, but I could probably call them mental abuse. And looking back, like I would never have my kid play for some coaches that, that act that way. And I can't imagine the, you know, if people knew hindsight's 2020, you know, I guess like everyone should buy into these screenings and, we should all be doing them. And, and if you see something like, don't, don't hold it in, speak up immediately. I mean, you obviously can't just throw accusations around willy nilly, like, you, you know, but like, if you think something might be weird, like go to the proper people and start, start documenting it and then, and then go from there. So we're protecting our kids. Well, well, Katie, let's, let's piggyback off that because um, you've written about like, I, you feel like a big part of the reason why people don't step forward when there are issues is this culture within some of the brokers of USA hockey. Um, and even some just organizations as a whole, they will hold things against kids or they will hold things against you, um, and make your life miserable. If you do anything that goes against, and I've, I've seen it, like I've been a part of it. I've been ridiculed by some people within USA hockey. It's not even necessarily the hockey people. It's more like the administrator type people that, I don't know. They get this if it's a power hunger thing or, or what, like do you, you feel like there's a real issue there that doesn't allow people to feel comfortable to kind of step forward when there's issues though. Is there? Oh, I think that's, you can say that about any institution in which, you know, few people enjoy a very large inordinate amount of power, right. That, you know, when, when people have doubts that those in power will put their safety and well-being um, at the top of the list in terms of priorities, that's a big problem. And, you know, when stepping forward could mean potentially having an adverse effect on your livelihood or your athletic career or could imperil your chances of development or moving up the next level, um, then I do think you are going to see people who are reluctant to speak out. And I think that's something that we should all be aware of and be vigilant to try to combat. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, Katie, the, the work that you did on this story, and I'm sure it's ongoing is, is, has been incredible. I know you've, you've opened up Pandora's box in, in Chicago and in Illinois of something that, again, it's, it was like, what dad, would you say it was an open secret forever? 
I mean, yeah. that's a good way of describing it. Yeah, and and I'll, I'll tell you one other thing that's it's not it's not necessarily funny, but it's just it's it's amazing. Um, you know, the the guys that are my age that I played with, a lot of them are in the hockey community, and when the first story came out, a lot of us contacted each other and talked about and were in locker rooms. And I just found it, you know, just really strange that the amount of people that were talking about it openly and openly knowing about it. And it's just like coaches and players that 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 I played with and coached with. Um, I just I couldn't believe it. And, you know, I didn't know their stories. They didn't know my stories. Um, and, And it was amazing how that 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 I don't know that that spider web just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and we were all looking at each other or talking to each other with amazement that it was so long and that so many people um, knew what was going on just crazy yeah yeah well Katie thank you for your diligence in this story I mean this is uh it's it's providing a, a I think a, a huge perspective on the game and uncovering some, some kind of not so good things about the game right now that need to get cleaned up. Um, and, uh, I, I just, for, for people in Illinois, I mean, it's, it's providing, especially our family with you, dad, like somebody that was in the room, a little bit of peace. And for these, these, these victims, some peace and yeah. knowing that this, this story is, is coming out. And, uh, I mean, you just have done such an amazing job reporting it. Um, and uh, we just can't thank you enough for the work that you do. And uh, before we let you go, any any last words or any, I don't know, is there any any other kind of like point or anything as you're kind of going through this story that you, you want to talk about? I think the only thing that I would say, um, and this is like, I would say probably, you know, the most consistent feedback that I have gotten about the story is I think people are happy um, to have people and institutions held accountable. Right. And, um, I believe, and of course, as, as a member of the media that like sunlight is the best disinfectant. And, um, so, you know, that's certainly what I strive for. And I think now that the curtain has been pulled back, I I hope that there will be more transparency and accountability in the future. Yep. Yep. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Dad. Love thanks you, for Katie. Thank you for doing this. No, I yeah. love you guys. Thank you guys awesome, for having me Katie. for amplifying this and sharing it so widely. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right, guys. We're talking soon.